the idea of conscious consumerism or ethical consumerism that I'm sure folks have heard about plenty of times is still very much rooted in consumerism. And that to me is really the problem. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Tis the season of American capitalism. This year, online shoppers spent $9 billion on Black Friday and $11 billion on Cyber Monday. It's a staggering haul. What's the impact of all this spending? And while everyone loves a bargain, is it possible that some items are just too cheap? Author Tanya Hester argues that while Americans buy a lot, we may be leaving something on the table, our power to leverage change based on how we use our money. Hester is a former progressive political consultant who the New York Times describes as the matriarch of the women's fire movement, which stands for Financial Independence, Retire Early. Her new book is Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earned, and Save as a Force for Change. She argues that where we shop, what we buy, and where we donate can influence the fate of our society and our planet. Tanya Hester, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. We are having this conversation at probably the pinnacle of consumerism and buying the buying season and giving season. Is the very idea of wallet activism a contradiction in terms? Wouldn't social change be that we just spend and consume way less? I think that spending and consuming way less is a big part of wallet activism. In fact, the idea of conscious consumerism or ethical consumerism that I'm sure folks have heard about plenty of times is still very much rooted in consumerism. And that to me is really the problem. It's that we should be talking about whether to consume more of the time rather than just, should I buy this thing or that thing, substituting one thing for another. If, if we continue to do that, we are going to quickly run through the earth's resources. We're not going to address the climate crisis. We're not going to address inequality crisis of our cheap stuff relying so much on exploited labor. And so, yes, absolutely. This is a great time of year to consume less if you can, although that is not what marketers want us to do. But I think the supply chain honestly provides us a really great excuse. If, if you can't uh, get a lot of stuff or you want to consume less, blame the supply chain. You've really never had a better excuse than that. Well, let's talk about that supply chain problem. Isn't so much of that related to the fact that we are just uh, consuming beyond our the planet and our economy's ability to sustain it. Yes, that's exactly right. The supply chain issue is certainly driven by the pandemic and how that displaced, for example, shipping containers all around the world. But the primary driver of it is not the pandemic as much as people's consumption really exploding. And I, I saw a study just the other day that said that people are buying more this holiday season so that if one gift doesn't come in in time, they'll have a backup gift. Oh, and I understand. I understand. <laughs> we want to be generous. We want to have a nice holiday time. But to look at this crisis and to say, well, the answer is to buy more. One, we're, we're worsening the supply chain crisis, but two, we're ignoring those larger systemic issues. But the good news is that if, if someone cares about 
the planet, if you care about people and you want to put your money toward good causes, or at least to stop contributing negatively, it doesn't mean that you can't shop. It doesn't mean that you can't give gifts. It means that we rethink some of that. And so it might mean giving gifts of new items, but just doing that a bit less often and and doing it more thoughtfully. It might mean trying to shop secondhand, which there is no supply chain issue if we're talking about buying secondhand. Um, It might mean giving gifts of experience, like offering to do something for someone. Those are things that are both good for your own finances and are good for reducing our reliance on the earth's resources. And again, exploited labor, which is an important piece of this too, that we should always be including. So um, let let me pick up on that thought of exploitive labor. And is there such thing as too cheap? There absolutely is. That's one of the guiding questions I include in the book is to train yourself how to think through decisions before you make them, whether it's about buying something or about a different kind of financial decision. But is it too cheap is really one of the big ones. We have been so trained to seek out the best deal all the time. And what that does is it puts a lot of downward price pressure on consumers or rather producers of products so that they can give us those deals or make us feel like we're getting a deal, even if we're not. And we have to look behind that and to say, okay, if I'm getting a deal on this and you're getting a deal on the same thing and we're all getting deals all the time, what does that mean? It means that the people who made it certainly weren't paid a living wage. It means that the warehouse workers who got it to you were probably uh, asked to skip their bathroom breaks or were pushed to work in unsafe conditions. It means that you know that the factory couldn't have taken a lot of care with the pollution they produce or the emissions they put out because they simply didn't have a price buffer built in to pay for those things. And so thinking about cheapness that way and starting to understand that cheapness is often a reflection of bad practices that are exploiting the planet and other people, I think it's easier then to turn those deals down. And that's not to say that you have to spend a lot to be a wallet activist at at all. And, And in fact, I think just not buying something is the most important wallet activism task of all. um, And that's something that anyone can afford to do. Um, But I think that many of us could afford to buy better quality items or to buy things that are made through better labor practices, but we choose not to because we're trained to chase that deal. And so again, yeah, this year, the consumer season, it's a great time to try to train yourself out of it or to try to recognize that when you see a deal on something and you go, oh, I have to get it right now. Ask yourself, do I? Do I really need it right now? That's something that I I won't just be trying to declutter six months or a year from now. And it's it's a good way to start rethinking some of our practices. What led you to want to write this book? This this book, Wallet Activism, I really wanted to write because truly I wanted to read it. I was like, I'm sure a lot of folks listening where I wanted to know that the money I was using in the world, whether it was to buy things or to save and invest or how I was earning my money. You know, I wanted to know that the things I was doing weren't causing harm. And there's a ton of research that shows that millennials and Gen Zers in particular care a lot about that, but so do a lot of folks in Gen X and and some boomers too. So this is a, a widespread phenomenon of folks wanting to have guidance on how to use our money for good. But I didn't feel that there was a resource like this out there. And I thought that a lot of the resources that were out there really didn't trust the reader to handle 
the full truth of our situation. You'd see people sort of putting a, a shiny coating on things or saying, well, if we just do this, we'll fix everything. And I think that we all innately know that's not true. We've been recycling for 30 years and we haven't saved the earth yet. <laughs> so uh, just those simple epithets of, hey, here's this easy thing you can do often aren't effective. And I felt like I'm an adult. I can handle bad news. I know that we're dealing with a lot of big problems, but I also believe that there are things that we can do that can be impactful. And so just not seeing other books out there like it, I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I have the research skills. I know how social change happens from my work in political consulting. And that was, that was really the focus of the book is to treat readers like adults who can handle the truth and to then say, okay, now how do we move forward from here? Because I wanted to both share the full story of what's going on, but also to help people simplify the decision-making process and what can otherwise feel very paralyzing. And I believe that we can make real change and it's within the individual's power to do so. So talk about the guiding questions you have in your book uh, you say there are four guiding questions that should guide our financial decision-making. Um, talk a little bit about a new way of thinking as you go into, let's say, holiday shopping. Yeah, you know, we are all bombarded constantly with messages, often driven by people who want to sell us things. And so a big part of becoming a wallet activist is to really learn to see through a lot of the lies that you're being told. And to recognize that most of the people telling you, hey, here's this great thing you can do, are ultimately trying to profit off that in some way. They're trying to either sell a thing or they're trying to promote their brand or you know something like that. And so I give you a set of four questions that help you see through some of that. And so this is really, I think, the piece of the book that I hope to get into everyone's brain so that when you're faced with a decision, you, you again, don't feel stuck. You feel like you can move forward. The first is for whom? And it's the question of, does the action proposed serve those who truly need the change because they have the most disadvantages or does it largely serve those who already have lots of advantages? So it's thinking about the question, for example, we like to talk about how we need more women as CEOs. And that's true. We do need more women CEOs. But if we focus on CEO potential uh, people, we're talking about some of the most privileged women in society versus if we talk about raising the pay and the working conditions for those on the front line, making the money that the company then has to manage with the CEO. Um, and so talking about going to those who have the most disadvantages or the least power is, is a great place to start question, can everyone do this? That's one where I, I think about it a lot in terms of like folks will say, well, to be environmental, you have to drive a Prius or now it's you have to drive a Tesla. Those are really expensive things that not everyone can drive. And, and honestly, those probably aren't the solution. And so it's questioning solutions like that to understand, okay, is this really going to get us there? That's not to say you shouldn't drive an electric car if you should afford one, because that's really important that we move toward more electric but it's to say maybe we don't promote that widely as a solution. We've, we've talked on this one a little bit, but I think it's really important, the question of, is it too cheap? So really, is something priced so low that it could not possibly have been produced or couldn't be, uh, couldn't be offered without exploitation of people, the planet, or both? And finally, what am I funding? What kind of world am I helping to create if I contribute profits to the entity offering something? I think of it sort of like political contributions. So 
you know, there was the discussion a few years ago about Chick-fil-A, the chicken sandwich uh, fast food company, and how they contributed a lot of money to anti-LGBTQ plus causes. And the discussion of, are you a bad person if you go eat at Chick-fil-A? And I, I think it's important to scale this stuff. So while I'm not suggesting we support companies who promote hateful policy in the world. It is worth asking, okay, if I spend five or $10 at a fast food place a couple times a year, how bad is that compared to spending several thousand dollars maybe at a mega retailer who does a lot of bad things with that money? So scale it. So you can think about, okay, the the amount of money that I'm going to spend with this company I don't like, would I be okay with that amount of money going to a politician? whose views I really dislike. And if that amount of money feels not that important to you, then it's probably okay to do that thing versus if it's a couple thousand dollars, you probably don't like that so much. So that's just a useful tool to help think about where you're spending it and focus you on the big things much more than the $1, $5, $10 decisions. Focus first on the $100,000, $10,000 decisions. You, uh, there is the phenomenon, and you talk about it, of greenwashing. Uh, where brands are just simply lying about their actual impacts on the world and society. Can you give a few examples that really stand out in your mind? And what can consumers do about this to see through this? I, 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 think... I, I will say one of my favorites was after the, um, the Gulf oil spill that British Petroleum BP was responsible for, they suddenly began running ads that rebranded themselves not as British Petroleum, but as Beyond Petroleum. Uh, so there's one of my favorite greenwashing. But tell me some of yours. Yeah, oh, BP is really mixed up in this stuff because they also popularized the term uh, carbon footprint to try to get us to focus on our individual climate impact rather than holding the big companies like BP and ExxonMobil and others accountable for all the emissions they're responsible for. And so there's a lot of it that sometimes it's to try to get you to feel comfortable with buying something. And sometimes greenwashing is about um, trying to get you to look the other way while bad things happen, which I think is very much true with the oil companies. Uh, you know, a, a current example that I've seen recently is uh, Glad plastic bags, the little single-use zipper bags. They're now selling some that say that they're made with 50% plant content, which doesn't really tell you anything. In fact, petroleum is plant content uh, from a long, long time ago. <laughs> so you could argue that any plastic is plant content, uh, but it's fundamentally trying to sneak something in there to get you to feel good about buying that thing, which, which ultimately... Certainly, there are folks who need single-use plastics, particularly folks with disabilities, and I think that we need to keep that in the conversation. But for a lot of folks, you don't necessarily need plastics like that that you, you use one time and throw away. And so even plastic recycling as a whole is very much greenwashing because very little plastic is ever truly recycled, uh, unlike with glass and metal in particular, and, and in some cases, paper. And the idea of plastic recycling was pushed by the plastics industry because they found that if you if you felt like, OK, I'm going to put this thing in the bin when I'm done and then it's going to go get turned into a new thing, that you felt better about buying more plastic. And so the idea of even being able to put a plastic bottle in a bin is itself greenwashing. And really what we should be doing is trying to minimize how much plastic we're purchasing in the first place. So that we're just cutting down the demand for it rather than assuming it's all going to get recycled, which unfortunately doesn't happen. I want to ask you a little bit about your personal story. Um, you uh, had a book. Your book prior to this was 
what is it called? Working optional? Work optional. Work optional. You retired at 38 and you are described as the uh, matriarch of the FIRE movement, the financially independent retire early movement. How did you retire at 38? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that this is something that inevitably comes up because it isn't common, although I think that we're seeing with the great resignation that certainly a lot of folks would like to leave work and a lot of folks are finding a way. In my case, I knew that I had inherited a gene from my dad that would lead to disability. He was forced to quit working at 41 um, by, you know, actually an unjust system that forced him out before he had the opportunity to take control of it. And I didn't want to repeat the same thing. And so the, the real secret is that it was very very uninteresting, very boring. What my husband and I did is we got in jobs that ultimately paid pretty well. And we made a habit of keeping our, our standard of living very consistent. So as we earned more, we didn't start spending more. We didn't buy a bigger house. We didn't buy a newer car. We didn't do all the things that consumer society tells you to do. And instead, as we earned more, we saved more. If we got a bonus or a tax refund or anything like that, we saved that stuff. And the truth is with with money, if you get in the habit of saving, it really just piles up over time. And so uh, we we did have some bits of luck in there. Like we were fortunate to buy our home during the financial crisis. So it was it was much cheaper than homes are today. Um, but, you know, the truth is, if you can just constrain your lifestyle and do what we did, which is hiding money from ourselves, we'd have our paycheck split. So only a little bit came to our checking account and the rest went to a offsite savings account. So we didn't even see that money. We therefore were much less tempted to spend it. We just found little tricks like that that worked for us and then focused on growing our careers and um, letting time pass. That's that's really the whole truth of it. So it sounds like you have had the privilege of not having unexpected expenses, family, medical, uh, you know, that would have drained a lot of your resources, which is obviously quite common for many people. Absolutely, it is. And you're you're completely right. And I say that sometimes that we were just lucky that we had well-paid jobs, we were able to save, and nothing happened in the meantime to derail us. We did find along the way that a loved one needed housing. And so we adapted our plan to buy a home for them that we then rent to them. So we became landlords unintentionally um, in an effort to, to help out. Um, so we did have some flexibility built into there, but you're so right. I do believe strongly that early retirement is not an option for most people because we have this terrible habit of underpaying people and saying that's okay, of eliminating safety nets so that a medical issue can bankrupt you. You know, things like that, that a just society would not have in it. Um, and so, yes, we were enormously lucky to be able to do it. And I think that's a huge part of my motivation now to write a book like this that isn't a topic that a lot of folks want to talk about. They don't want us to be buying less. Um, but I believe that social change is really important. And this is, to me, a big part of kind of repaying the, the luck that I was granted. It seems like from your recent writings and blog posts, you're kind of backing away from the retire early movement. And you've written recently that you believe it upholds systemic racism. So I wonder if you could talk about your thinking about this now and what's caused you to sort of change your th thoughts on it. I don't know that I would call it changing my thoughts as much as maybe feeling more bold about expressing them. 
the, the truth is that most personal finance advice puts all the responsibility on the individual for their circumstances. And I often see people even say things like that being poor is a choice, which I think anyone who has taken a serious look at the data knows that that's not true, that we have systemic issues uh, on class, on race, on income level, on all kinds of things. And so the idea simply of just saying, hey, if you want to be rich, you can be rich. If you are poor, that's because you want to be poor. Even just that is loaded with all kinds of prejudice and uh, failure to acknowledge the real world and the systems that people live in. And so uh, I think, one, writing about early retirement now, you know, during a pandemic at a time when, sure, lots of people have been able to quit, but lots of folks have also found themselves in much worse circumstances. A lot of folks have been sick and are feeling the long effects of COVID. A lot of folks have died or lost loved ones. This is not the time to me to talk about, you know, what some privileged people can do uh, and get out early from, from a career. Um, but I do think it's important to question the broader frame of personal finance advice and, and to understand that, yes, we can all take steps uh, and we can improve things for ourselves, but it might be big improvement for some people and small improvement for others just based on circumstances and based on how uh, inequitable our sharing of opportunities is in America. Hmm. Um, we're at a time, uh, at a moment, when a lot of people are thinking about their giving, their philanthropy, their personal philanthropy. Uh, you're critical of philanthropy, and you describe how it can be done wrong. Um, so talk about how it can be done right and what the pitfalls are. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone has heard those uh, sponsor messages on uh, radio or television from big foundations who want you to know how great they are. Big foundations, though, are a significant problem because they allow billionaires and other very rich people to put a bunch of money into an organization, get a huge tax write-off, and then continue to control that money forever, even though uh, when you get the tax write-off, you're supposed to be letting go of that money. So you've got big foundations headed by people whose names you very much know who set the priority for nonprofits and non-governmental organizations around the world. They say, okay, organizations working in Africa, you have to focus on this issue rather than saying, hey, folks on the ground in those countries, what are the problems that actually need solving and how can those with money best support those solutions? Um, we've seen it in the US with a lot of things in education, You know, different trends getting pushed into the classroom. And those have all been driven by billionaire philanthropists who think that they know the best thing for everybody. And so I do think philanthropy is really important, but the fact that it's driven by big foundations is a problem. So this is a good time of year to be thinking about your own giving. And I think the more individuals can give, the more we can offset that money that the foundations give so that nonprofits can set their own course. They can say, hey, here's what we're hearing. Here's what we want to support. And we'd like to do that. Um, you know, individual giving for the most part comes with no strings attached. And the best thing you can do besides just giving more is to make that giving regular. So a lot of us tend to think about giving at the end of the year. That's when we get all the pleas from everybody to say, hey, please give us money. It's when folks with a lot of money tend to be thinking about their tax deductions. But the best thing you can do is set something up so that you're giving monthly. And if you're able to do that, that then makes that income for the nonprofits much more predictable so that they can, in fact, build programs around that money and not just build programs around the big foundation checks that come in. 
Let's talk about one of the biggest things we spend on, uh, and that's food. What does wallet activism around food purchasing look like? Honestly, it, it comes down to fundamentally two principles. So the first is just thinking through the quantities you're buying of the foods that have the biggest impact on the planet and also on folks like farm workers, people who work in meat processing plants, all the different humans who are involved in agriculture, many of whom are some of our least empowered workers. Uh, and so that's, that's the first principle is how much do we buy of things? And the second is how do we reduce food waste? If food waste, if we if we totaled up all the food wasted in the world and all the parts of it from growing it to transporting it and, and everything there, it would actually be the third largest country in the world in terms of uh, climate emissions. So it's an enormous problem. And a lot of that is food we waste in our own homes. And so simply making an effort to reduce food waste, in this case, honestly, that saves you money. It's not always about spending. Here, it's about spending less if you can waste less. Uh, but that's a huge act we can take. And then in terms of how much we buy of things, it's looking at, can we reduce the amount of red meat that we're eating? Can we reduce the amount of um animal product that we're buying that has traveled a long distance to reach us. Uh, things like that. You know, you'll, you'll often hear folks say, well, they, they say that in order to have climate change, you can never have a burger again. And that's not true at all. But maybe when we eat burgers, we could eat them a bit less often, or we could make the, the patty a little bit smaller. Um, things like that, the more that we can scale that stuff down and focus on um, vegetable products or things produced closer to us, um, People really underestimate what a big impact our food has on the climate and on workers. And finally, uh, Tanya, you know, the conversation now has really shifted from individual actions to doing something about systemic problems, systemic racism, uh, the climate crisis, which is all about the way systems interact with one another. How does what you're talking about address systemic problems? I think it's important that we talk about solving problems from all angles. So I think that the discussion of systemic issues is hugely, hugely important. But we sometimes will say, okay, should we talk about this in terms of individual action or should we talk about it in terms of collective action or policy action? And that is not a question that should be either or. It should be a question of and. And so I think that an important part of wallet activism is understanding when something requires policy action or requires collective action, requires holding corporations accountable or changing laws, and understanding when we as individuals are actually feeding into the problem. And so you'll hear the stat a lot about 100 companies in the world are responsible for 70% of all climate emissions. I hear that stat frequently. Uh, it probably sounds familiar to many of you. But well, that's true, and we need to hold those companies accountable, we also need to own that we as individuals are their customers. We are funding them. And so why not address it through both sides of going for policy that helps regulate them more and individual action that defunds them or pushes them to change? There are many different ways that can, that can happen. It could be shareholder activism. If you are able to own stock in a company and you want to show up at the shareholder meeting and protest, we saw examples of that in the last year with shareholders at Chevron and ExxonMobil pushing for more um, sustainable energy projects to be part of their priorities. 
and it was successful. Um, you know, we've, we've seen all kinds of consumer action that has pushed for change and created change. And I talk in the book the ways that that can be most effective uh, because not everything is equally impactful. But if we care about change, then we should be attacking it from all sides. And that's something that we all have the power to do. Well, Tanya Hester, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. Tanya Hester's latest book is Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks.